This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. Across Northern Ireland, on your radio and on BBC Sounds. This is The Stephen Nolan Show. Good morning, welcome along to this podcast from the Nolan Show today. Money, money, money. It's right at the heart of the uh, discussion and the news cycle and your life actually, dependent on how Stormont decides to cut the cloth, dependent on how Stormont decides we're going to pay the bills in this country. So it's not a boring talk- topic and we spent a lot of time on it this morning. Also, the Stormont break. Could we get into a situation if the Stormont break is pulled? That's the mechanism where... 30 MLAs in Northern Ireland can decide to pull a break and then uh, around EU legislation then it goes off and the UK and the EU talk about it and all of that. But the storm and break according to a government official could result in Northern Ireland uh, having not new UK law, not new EU law, but old EU law called the Trivergence yesterday. Try to get our heads around it this morning. Hope you enjoy today's show. Thank you for listening. The Stephen Nolan Show. Good morning, everyone. So another big day in Stormont at the end of a big week. We're making no apology for starting with Stormont spending and revenue plans again this morning and the row with the government about the £3.3 billion funding package. Why? Because as I've kept saying all week, although what's being talked about, it might sound boring, it might sound far removed, it absolutely affects you directly. You listening to this programme, it goes straight to what extra taxes or charges that you might have to pay very soon this year, what wages you might earn, what public services like health, education and policing you and your family might receive. So bear with me this morning. The executive yesterday agreed the cash and capital allocations for the various government departments. And that included how much money was being made available to settle pay claims for public sector workers. The finance minister, Kiva Archibald, said the executive had secured agreement from Treasury to increase the amount available for public sector pay. £688 million on the table to allow negotiations to start with the various unions. I am delighted that the executive has today supported my proposal to make a pay settlement um, with an allocation of over £685 million pounds for our, our hard-working public sector workers. This is a really good day for our public sector workers who've had to wait too long for their pay award, for our healthcare workers, our teachers, our police, our civil servants, and it will enable negotiations to begin immediately with trade unions. And I want to see those conclude as quickly as possible to ensure that workers are getting a fair pay award and that they're actually seeing that money in their pay packets as quickly as possible. I think it's also a a good signal coming from this executive that we are working together to deliver for people in the most challenging of of circumstances. Kiva, are you going to be able to deliver for people? Minister, what's your thinking around how you're going to pay the £688 in year two, in year three, in year four? What's going to happen? What is the collective view of Sinn Féin on that? What's the collective view of all of the different parties in that executive on that? 
where are we getting the money from to pay this in year two, year three, year four? And in terms of the pay settlements, it's not clear when the money will be released. So can we get clarity around that? When's it being released? How will it be shared out between the workers across teaching and transport and health and civil service and other staff? Will it convince them to lift the threat of strike action? Now, while ministers were making the announcement, an independent watchdog for budget affairs warned the overall £3.3 billion deal between the government and the executive necessary to fund the pay awards would mean Stormont faced another financial cliff edge in 2026. That's just two years' time. It also suggested the current deal would mean the executive's aim of funding Northern Ireland's public services at the level of need would not be met until, wait for this, 2035. 11 years' time. The chair of the watchdog, Sir Robert Choate, questioned why the government had set up the deal in the way they did. It's not obvious why you would uh, have that cliff edge designed into a financial package, but presumably the UK government thinks that that should give enough time for the executive to uh, take decisive action on revenue raising, uh, on budget savings, on public service reform. But some people will obviously ask whether that's a realistic timetable. The Deputy Leader of the Lands Party, Stephen Farry, with us today. Good morning, Stephen. Stephen, there are so many people wishing you and and the other politicians well in in yet another attempt uh, to to run government here. But one one of the things you need to be good at is money. You need financial competence. So is this deal enough? And if it's not, what are you doing back in? Well, well, first of all, Stephen, I think we have to see this as a glass half full. I mean, $3.3 is a major injection of of cash into Stormont in the short run. But I I accept, yes, there is a cliff edge with it. Um, It essentially gives Stormont about uh, two years. And then we we need to see a longer-term settlement in place around the financial framework. So this buys us time, but it's not a a, a medium or long-term solution uh, to Northern Ireland's public finances. And the, the key aspect in all of this is going to be negotiations with the Treasury ahead of the next spending review, UK-wide, in terms of putting in place that proper fiscal floor for Northern Ireland at the right level. And that's how we get the proper sustainable public finances. So, I only ask one question about why you're back in. The reality is you are now, so let's look forward. In, in, in terms of revenue raising, Stephen, is it not more mature uh, and more realistic for the executive to say, we need to look at everything? rather than rule out a whole list of things, what are you ruling in to get more money? Yeah, well, well, we need to see, first of all, revenue raising in in its proper context, and I I will come to that in a a second. But the sums that we're talking about in terms of of revenue raising, in terms of Stormont's current options and powers, are minuscule in terms of some of the bigger uh, figures that will come from other aspects. So what we do in terms of of a fiscal floor has the potential to improve Stormont's finances by around £500 million per year. Also, we have to look at terms of what's happening in terms of UK spending overall. So if spending is going up across the UK that will benefit uh, all all aspects, including the, the devolved uh, regions. Obviously, we're seeing spending UK wide um, going through the floor in recent years, particularly on the, on the aftermath of the uh, the, the, the trust quartang uh, debacle a, a couple of years ago. And it's important whenever we, we, the UK government are lecturing Stormont in terms of good public finances that we see this in the wider context around the, the gross mismanagement of public finances at a UK wide uh, level. And within that, yes, I mean revenue raising can be something that 
is of benefit in terms of the margins, provided it is done in a fair, open, transparent way. So what and are the proposals from your party? Because, you you know, you were out for two years, so you had loads of time to sit down, Stephen, and work out the potentials here around policy for your party. Yep. Where, where do you think it is fair to take money from people living in Northern Ireland, extra taxes... Where do you think it's fair to take that? I, I, I think the conversation needs to go into in terms of different powers to, to Stormont. Uh, we have seen Scotland and Wales have different levers in terms of, 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 um, uh, of raising funds than Northern Ireland. Our tools are very, very limited in that respect. That's where the d- debate really So what really tools do you want? To Around what? Well, I mean, I think we need do need to have a conversation around, for example, income tax uh, powers, uh, and that's something you jump into. Uh, but obviously, that is a, a a big a big lever, and income tax is a much more progressive uh, form of of revenue raising well, than doing fu- something. That would be fundamental divergence from from well, 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 from the UK except, Treasury, wouldn't it? Well, well, except that Scotland has has those powers. Yes, so, they I mean, do. But do you, but do you think in a contentious place like Northern Ireland, uh, income tax powers being devolved? Would be well. Do you think the public would trust you, given the overspend well, I, I, you've had and, for many and, years? And, and I think, Stephen, I mean, in terms of the trajectory over the past twenty-five years, I, I understand why people would be sceptical in terms of uh, Stormont's ability to manage okay. money uh, effectively. But it is worth bearing in mind that those overspends that you talk about would not have occurred if we had had a proper fiscal floor in place over the past uh, two or three okay. years. So we, we object to the way that's been framed around the, the, the issue of, of an overspend. So, and just to explain to people, majority of people don't know what a fiscal floor is, for goodness sake. A fiscal floor is essentially um, to run public services in the UK, it is acknowledged and accepted that dependent on where you are in the UK, it might be more expensive to run those public services. So what they do is they compare it with England. And so if it's costing, if England's getting 100 quid to run a a public service, um, then for example, in Wales, they have acknowledged that because of Wales, where it is and what it costs to run those public services, that they get slightly more. I think it's one fifteen Wales gets. And the Northern yeah. Ireland executive is, you, you are arguing that you need one twenty four to to deliver the same public yeah. services well, as, well, as, as England. The Fiscal Council talked, uh, Stephen, around 124. I mean, our figure is 127 because we believe that better takes okay. into account the, the devolution but, of policing and justice. So that, that's the type of conversation that we need to have from the position of a sitting executive with the Treasury over the next couple of years. We, we want to see a proper a proper process and review let, around all of that. Let me come... Look, it's not going to happen anytime soon, is it? Anytime soon. But So I'll, I'll move on quite quickly after this. But But your first proposal, for example, of a new power that you want is income tax. So who would you tax more? Well, income tax is based upon people's income, uh, Stephen. I mean, so it is linked to what, to what people earn. So it, it is, therefore, um, a, a reflection of people's ability to I know pay. that, but would you put the... If you if you had the discretion, where I, would you I'm put not, the I'm rates not, up? I'm, I'm not proposing, Stephen, at this stage that we do anything in terms of a variety of income tax. But what, what I'm saying is that it's important. I mean, it's, it, it is a conversation we have to have around the, the devolution of other fiscal levers to Stormont. But those decisions have to be taken by an executive in, in the round. Now, before we get to that point, there's, there's issues in terms of... the 
overall efficiency of how Stormont is run and decisions that, that, are, that are taken. You know, we've talked for many, many years around how Northern Ireland is, 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 uh, has distortions in its budget due to trying to manage a divided society. We end up uh, needlessly duplicating right. issues. For example, in, ed- in education, uh, there is massive inefficiencies and uh, compared to where, for example, health is in terms of at least having a plan around transformation, education is way behind okay. in, in that regard. Right. So that's, that's things, things we can do, for example, in our health sector in terms of better management of demand in, in and out. We, we need to look, for example, at the interface between discharge possible and domiciliary care, how that's been run. That's uh, we, we end up, those are all big conversations around reform. And that's cutting costs. Absolutely. Which can unleash, and, and, and what I'm saying, Stephen, is the, the sums there that are potentially within our grasp if we can get the right decisions taken and people avoid playing populist games around them will far outweigh anything we will, we will end up raising or not raising from revenue raising. And in some ways, I mean, I find this week quite frustrating in the sense that we've ended up almost like sitting around this £113 million figure which has been thrown in there. And that's now taken all the oxygen in terms of our financial discussions Rather than actually looking at the wider issues of reform, well, that's what. Well, that's why not they, they, sort it then? That in terms of that 130 million, why not sort it with making a decision as to what would meet the 113 million revenue raising target? Yeah, but equally, Steve, now say, look, I mean, why, why is the government actually the first thing they're doing for an executive is just back and just finding its feet and hasn't even had a chance to look at wider um, reform and transformation issues properly? Why is the government pushing that arbitrary 113 figure at them? Maybe because, um, maybe because you allowed them to. Maybe because on behalf of the people of Northern Ireland said this to the DUP on Wednesday night, you all didn't nail the detail. Maybe because they maybe because they looked at the local parties and they thought, have they just agreed to go back in without nailing the detail? Ha ha! Look at the look at the huge chasm they've left. Let's hit the people of Northern Ireland with a hundred and thirteen million pound bill. Maybe because you didn't protect us from it. Let, let, me, let me say two things in response to that, Stephen. The first thing is, the Alliance Party never made finance a condition for being in an executive or not being in an executive. Our view was always that we would have these financial discussions from the position of, a, of, a, of an executive. And look where it's so got you. Was, look where it's got you. Well, I, I believe, Stephen, we would have done equally well, if not better, from a position of having a proper finance minister in place with all the weight of the civil service behind him or her to work, work through, through, the, through those details. The second thing I want to say to you is that there was not a deal between the Northern Ireland political parties and the government around this. There was a paper presented to the parties uh, in the final week of December before, before Christmas, which was the financial package. The notion that we all sat around the table and put our hands up to say, yes, thank you very much, or we all shook hands with the Secretary of State is, is no, off, is off the no, 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 no. No, 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 that's not what I'm asking. What I'm asking, and the point I'm making, absolutely, it's clear that you didn't agree to it, but you didn't stop it on behalf of the people of Northern Ireland. You did not when you were around those discussions and you knew that revenue raising was being discussed. You're you're essentially saying this morning, many of you are saying the same, different political parties, there's no way people in Northern Ireland can be hit with revenue raising now. And you didn't protect us from it in those discussions in December. Well, Stephen, I'm not quite sure what you mean by, by, by stopping it. I mean, overall, the financial package is a good thing for Northern Ireland. It is a major injection of Is of revenue cash. raising this year the demand, the instruction, the condition from the British government? 
Is that a good thing for Northern Ireland this year, Steve? No, that, that element is not. And that's so not why what didn't was, you protect that, us from that, it? That is, that is not what was in the paper. Let, let me just t- t- walk you through this in, in, in two stages. Initially, the week, week before that, the parties uh, received an offer of $2.5 billion, And within that, there was a very clear and strict requirement on 15% rise in the regional rate. All the, parties, all the parties pushed back against that over, yep. the, over the, the, the intervening days. Then we were given a revised paper um, the following week, which basically said that uh, in relation to the repayment of the debt around about £560 million, yep. that the executive would have to put in place a, a financial uh, plan yep. in, in relation to that, and that would, would need to include revenue raising. Correct. Now, in that paper, the, the figure of £113 million was purely presented as an indicative, illustrative point. There was not a requirement to do that. Absolutely. And there wasn't a, ti- a timescale in terms of that absolutely. revenue raising. So, there was no, absolutely. So, so, so you're right. That, you're right. So that's, that, that, that's what the paper was, was, was saying, essentially. Absolutely, it was. Hold on, hold on, hold on. So on that paper, you're skilled negotiators. You know what the British government, how much manoeuvring they can do. So in that paper, it was talking about revenue raising, but it wasn't telling you when you had to do it. So, so not one of you, not one political party on behalf of Northern Ireland sat down and said, see, when you say we've got a revenue raise, is there a time period in that? Well, 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 can we protect ourselves here? Can we get it in writing that there's no way you will insist on this in year one? But the point I'm making, Stephen, is that, there. That, that was, whenever that paper was presented, that was the end of that process. So, I mean, uh, that was a quick meeting on a Tuesday morning. Here's here's a revised paper. Here's what Northern Ireland's getting. And, Good luck to you. And something, get, please and, get an executive and, back and, in place. Okay, okay. And so there was a quick meeting about money? There was a quick meeting about something so fundamental to Northern and Ireland Stephen, it, about it money. Quick, it, it wasn't quick at our, at our behest. I mean, this is the way UK government was operating. They had um, produced a revised paper. That was that was it. It was a, a, a fait accompli, and it's, it's over to the parties um, to to, work, to run with it and work with it. We've been we've been pushing the issue of finances for well over a year. We've had multiple meetings with government ministers and officials uh, prior uh, to that. We were, we're working with Jane Brady and the Northern Ireland Civil Service around all of this. So a lot of work has gone into this in terms of moving, moving, the, moving the, the dial in that particular regard. And I think there's another thing, Steve, that's worth referencing too, which is in relation to the public sector pay um, issue uh, in terms of the, the deal that we have. And obviously there's negotiations that have to play out now and, uh, and that uh, may or may not address all of the demands and there may be other decisions that ministers have to take to try to, to address that. But this is an important point to bear in mind, Stephen. In the rest of the UK, the equivalent public sector settlements had to be paid out of existing budgets, out of existing departmental allocations, uh, and that meant those uh, departments had to make trade-offs to do that. In Northern Ireland, we had we have this extra money uh, for one year to, to, to Northern Ireland. Yes, it's for one year, but let's let's put that in its context. That is something Northern Ireland has more beneficially and on better terms than elsewhere in the UK. And obviously, yes, we have to work how that's going to be baselined. We have stabilisation money uh, over the, the, the next uh, couple of years and then we're into those negotiations. Stabilisation money only lasts two years. It's a billion yeah. a year. So yeah. how, how, how do you... Well, let's take if you're Robin Swan, for example, in health. So how do you train up all of the years that it takes to train up a, a, a doctor or a nurse? How do you employ that person... And you think to yourself, I don't know how I'm going to pay for this in year three. How do you do that? 
Yeah, and, and Stephen, that that's a, a a very legitimate question, and it's one of the reasons why we've been pushing for for many years around the whole notion of, of multi-year budgets. And with the whole instability and the constant collapse of Stormont over recent years, we, there hasn't been that f- framing of of a multi-year budget that allows that that, that recruitment uh, of staff to be put. And there still isn't. And, and, and yes, there still isn't. And obviously, there's a challenge for the new executive to try to put in place. But how do, long, they, how do they meet that challenge? What do you do? Like well, quite literally, well, how do we how do we recruit people if we don't know we're going to be able to afford them yeah, and, and, in a couple and, of years' the, time? The issue I come back to, Stephen, is that the quicker we can accelerate those discussions around the proper fiscal floor for Northern Ireland and get uh, clarity from whoever's going to be in power next time round in the UK, the better it's going to be for, for Northern Ireland. Because so, you're right, there is difficulty can, in terms of the executive making can, long-term planning can, assumptions, given the way this has been framed. Stephen, I'm about to speak to Patrick Mahone from NIPSA this morning. Can, can you help me understand how we are... Um, look... The, the the momentum behind giving public sector workers a, a pay rise, given the inflationary pressures that they've been under, is huge. And and we, we've heard the finance minister talk about the the great opportunity there is now, the great decision, the six hundred eighty eight million to give to public sector workers. How are we giving though that that money to public sector workers that pay rise? How do we know we can afford it, Stephen? Beyond year one. Yeah, well, Steve, I think I think we do need to be very, very measured. I mean, this isn't a great victory in, in the sense that everything everything's solved because I know negotiations have to take place, and even even with pay rises, I mean, we know that people are under pressure right across the board with with cost of living um, pressures. The money, as far as I understand it, has now been released um, by the, the finance minister to the various um, departments, and it's going to be for, for them now to negotiate with the, the the unions that are relevant within their their, their various ambits. So that money's and, been released, has it? It, it, it has, um, as far as I understand. Yes, it's, it's, it's been, been reported on the BBC. But how, and, but how does and, each how, how does each of those individual departments, those ministers, how do they decide in in consultation with their discussions with the union? Okay, so they're in there, they're negotiating with the union. If you're a minister, how do you decide how much of a pay rise to give these workers if you don't know where the money's coming from in year three? How do you do that? Yeah, and I mean, we're back, circling back, Stephen, to, to the basic problem in terms of the, the short-termism around some of the um, the financial offers that, that, that we have. But at the moment, I, I suspect that ministers are going to have to, to move on the assumption that whatever they they, they uh, agree can be sustained um, in, in, in the medium it's and long term. It's a I mean, we're, we're in this situation, and, and sometimes, Stephen, you have to move um, in, in, in faith that, that things will be sorted out, because if you simply sit, sat back and said, well, we can't move on this until we so, have a long-term a guarantee so the, 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 the opposite will happen and workers won't get actually anything in, in the short term and that, that isn't so a justifiable is it, situation. Is it so, a I mean, possibility, this, this, Stephen? Is it a possibility? Let's hope this doesn't happen. But is it a possibility that these public sector workers could get a pay rise now and if we don't get more money, we don't get what we want and your party was among many that said let's get back in there and negotiate... So if we don't get more money, is it a possibility that those workers, because they've got the pay rise now, could be made redundant in three years' time? There's no money to pay for them. No, Steve, I don't think we should be framing it in, in, in those terms. My question I mean, is, is it a possibility? Well, no, I think I mean, public services need to be properly funded. And that means having the staff there and available. And if we can't to, afford to, to pay to the jobs, what happens? 
we, we are in, we're back in a negotiation with, with the Treasury uh, around the, the, the financial framework for Northern Ireland. And it's important to recognise that we have a recognition from both the Conservative and Labour parties Northern Ireland is structurally un- underfunded. So the principle of what we're t- saying is being acknowledged. This is now an issue of, of getting it over the line in terms of the details and, and a proper a proper formula. And what we want to see, and this is a point that I want to stress, that this needs to be a properly evidence-based um, process uh, where we bring in the experts to, to, to help and guide okay. uh, the, the civil service in that pa- regard. Patrick Mulholland is joining us. Stay there, Stephen, if you can. Okay. And, and thanks for spending time with us this morning. Patrick Mulholland from, from NIPSA. Are you clear, Patrick, um, what will happen now over the next couple of weeks? Are you clear that you're getting enough money so that all strike action is gone? Well, can I begin, Stephen, by, um, first of all, good morning, but can I begin, Stephen, by paying tribute to the trade unions and the strikers who have very dramatically moved the situation on in the last year and a half? And remember, what they have achieved is they have brought public service pay to the top of the agenda. And when we say public service pay is at the top of the agenda, it also means public services are at the top of the agenda. Because I think everybody now recognises that the level of underpayment of public services is fundamentally undermining their ability to deliver. Now, secondly, on, on the package that has been put in front of us, we have not been party to the detail of that package yet, and there's a number of elements of it um, that need to be teased out. So there's the civil service pay, but there's also a civil service um, bonus issue that has to be resolved. There is the TransLink pay issue. There is the education issue, but it is, it's two separate issues really within one. One is the teacher's pay, and the other is a pay and grading so, review for non-teachers. I'll just make this okay. point, Stephen, because it's relevant to how this all works out. Um, so, for instance... In the, there's a, there appears to be an allocation to the education budget, but we are concerned that that allocation may solely be for teachers' pay and it doesn't address the pay of non-teaching staff. So there's a number, number of elements within this that we're not aware of the detail yet. And uh, to be fair, there are meetings lined up between the employer's side and um, the unions to discuss the details, and they are unfolding sort of as we speak. In and when week. you say, that's that's a really important point you, you've made, Patrick. So when you say that you, you, you think that there is money allocated, destined to give teachers a pay rise yeah. and, and, and non-teaching staff, are you talking about classroom assistants, porters, cooks, cleaners in schools? Yes, we're not sure whether they are part of the allocation or not. Certainly, we have pushed very hard on it. We met politicians um, just before Christmas and after Christmas to push this particular issue. And, and, and it was brought onto the agenda of the discussions between the Northern Ireland office and the, um, the political parties in the North. But whether it's actually allocated, we don't know, Stephen. Would it, we, are meeting the, we are meeting the minister on Tuesday and hopefully we'll get clarity there. Would it be immoral for teachers to accept a pay rise and watch and walk past cleaners and cooks and porters and te- and classroom assistants in the same building left with nothing would that be immoral for the teachers to accept that would it be immoral for your union to accept that well, obviously, we don't organise teachers there in the teaching unions. Um, our view, NIPS's view, would be that this pay and grading review is fundamental to a resolution to this whole cost of living crisis that exists in Northern Ireland. And it certainly would be our intention to continue that struggle until we reach a resolution. Now, can I just say, Stephen, you raised the point about industrial action. I want to be clear about this. NIPSA is looking forward to an engagement 
with the employers and the ministers. And hopefully that engagement will bring a resolution in all areas and we'd be very enthusiastic and pleased by that. But at the same time, we are keeping our powder dry, so to speak. We are actively involved in a process of drawing up areas for industrial action and down to the detail of time and place, etc., etc. So we're not naive about this. We understand that we are in a process here and we have to see how that process unfolds. We hope it goes well, but if it does not go well, we are in a position to revert to industrial action fairly quickly. Um, Obviously that's not the place that anybody wants to be, but we have to deal with some of the realities here. There there is a problem and we have stated this before, and one of the problems is the lack of real information over the last six months, and certainly over the last month and a half, real information on what the financial implications of the various discussions taking place, the lack of that information has not been helpful. And it's almost driven the Assembly straight into a new crisis. Um, you know, that's, uh, immediately it returns. We're suddenly back in a new crisis again. That's um, that's very and, unhelpful. And Patrick, where are you getting it from that you don't think the money is destined for non-teaching staff? Where have you got that from? Well, just the fringe discussions we have been having. I'm, I'm not saying it's not. What I'm saying is, Stephen, it's not clear to us whether it is included. Well, in surely the you've asked the not. question. What answer have you got? We back? have. We have. We have asked the question. And the answer is not clear. To be fair... Well, when you ask the, the question, people, the they've either said the, yes or no, it applies to them. <laughs> what they have said is that the non-teaching pay and grading review was part of the discussion that was taking place between the Northern Ireland office and the political parties. Um, they also said that there's a business case that is moving between the Department of Finance and the Education Authority at the present time, as they clarified. But we had had no information on whether it was actually included in the package yesterday. Um, and, and as I said, there was no sharing of the detail of that package with the trade union movement. So we have to wait now and see in individual areas whether it is, it is included or not. Let me pause there. We're back in just a second. Stephen, thank you for waiting for us. And what will speak to us as well, Pivotal Director, will hopefully continue speaking to Patrick. Just looking in the news there, Stephen Farry, Deputy Leader of the Lands Party, where Kiva Archibald, our new finance minister, is saying she hopes the money will be released as soon as possible. The pay will be released as soon as possible. Has the money been released or not? Well, I'm not quite sure exactly on, on the mechanics, but um, I mean, there, there is reports from yesterday of the allocations that have been made uh, to the, the various departments. So the departments know the envelopes that they have in which to um, negotiate. Yeah. But, it is a, but allocations isn't a release of money because then the decision's got to be made, as Patrick was, 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 was demonstrating, who gets the money, who doesn't. Is it based on yeah. our pay increases, based on pay or grade? There's loads of decisions still to be made here. Aren't yeah, well, well, it's, well, it's clear that the, um, the executive has taken a policy decision on the allocations to, to departments. Beyond that, I'm not saying this is easy, but if, if ministers wanted to put additional resources on the table to top that up, uh, that's an option for them uh, to do uh, as well. But in terms of, of additional the detail, resources, where are they getting the money from to do that? Well, it, it's, it's difficult, Stephen, to say in theory that is something that still could, could be done if people had were so minded well, to, to well, do you've so. Well, got a, you've got a minister, now you belongs to the Justice Minister. Well, <laughs> Justice well, 
Will she be topping up pay? Justice is under huge, huge pressure in that particular respect. Well, there's every the, department. The, the, the issue which now happens in terms of negotiations is with the, the departments and even the arms like bodies underneath the departments negotiating directly with the, with the trade union. So the executive doesn't doesn't do that negotiation. It's for the people much closer um, to as the employers who will work with the, the various uh, trade relevant unions to. Well, the ministers work will decide, won't they? Well, ultimately, ministers will have to sign that off in, in, within their departments. But even then, it will be the ministers sitting down with the unions. It'll, it'll be the staff um, work, uh, working this through at a, at a human resources level and uh, bringing that uh, decision to the minister for uh, sign-off or otherwise. Stay there, Stephen. Just another couple of minutes. I'm Watts, the former head of the Electoral Commission in Northern Ireland, now director of the think tank Pivotal. And good morning. Good morning, Stephen. Help me understand, when I hear Northern Ireland Fiscal Council and Stormont on the cliff edge in 2026, help me understand... Um, what's going on here and how serious a statement that is from the Fiscal Council? So the Fiscal Council is an independent body of experts who look at the public finances and they did a report published yesterday about the financial deal that brought back Stormont and they said in the short term there's extra money so there's £850 extra this year so the year that's just coming to an end, 23-24 there's then £750 extra next year and the following year but after that is where the problem starts because there's only $320 billion extra for 26-27. So that's what they meant by the cliff edge. So in the short term, the deal gives Northern Ireland a big chunk of extra money to pay for public sector pay settlements and stabilisation of public services. But then, very soon really, only two years away, there's a falling off in that amount, this cliff edge they're talking about. And that means the executive is going to have to find ways to plug that gap themselves through revenue raising, like you've been discussing and there's been a lot of conversation about in the last week, or through uh, public service transformation so that we can deliver more with the same amount of money or with less money, um, or through just simply cutting services. Not popular, obviously, but they're going to have to plug that gap somehow. Or, and this is what our politicians are focused on at the minute, they can go back to the UK government and say, you are not giving us enough in the block grant. We need a further uplift. So the Fiscal Council, really good independent expert analysis, shines a light on these numbers, shows us what's going on and says, OK, we may be all right for a couple of years, but after that, there's a problem. And so it's the... If they're ruling out revenue raising, if they don't do revenue raising, Anne, are they betting the farm on the British government putting that fiscal floor up sufficiently so that they can pay all of these pay rises that they're giving? If you absolutely rule out revenue raising, you've basically got three options to balance your budget. One is you get more money from Westminster. That's the simplest thing to do in a way. Um, it's the thing that um, Northern Ireland generally does is go back to Westminster and ask for more. So you can go back to Westminster and ask for more. You can reduce your spending by cutting services, very unpopular, obviously, or you can think about efficiency measures, transformation in public services, making savings, doing more with the money that you've got so that you don't have to cut services. But it's really important to say you've got a limited number of options here. If you refuse to do revenue raising, you have to do one of the others. And at the minute, politicians are very much putting their 
uh, all their focus on going back to Westminster and saying, give us more money. And I do think, Stephen, from the Fiscal Council's report yesterday, that there is some um, clear argument for going back to Westminster about where the fiscal floor has been set, because it's been set in a way that we're only going to reach what's defined as need, this 124% that we're talking about. That's only going to be reached in about 10 years' time. I don't understand so it. I, I, I've, I've spent half an hour talking to the team here about this morning. I still don't understand this 2035 stuff, right? So explain to me in my simple mind um, how we wouldn't be meeting need until 2035. What does that mean? So what the, the British government are offering is that the Barnet Consequentials, which is when you, you apply the Barnet formula to the additions of funding in England, it's saying Northern Ireland will get what it would have got before uplifted by 24%. So it's saying need is higher in Northern Ireland, so we will uplift your consequentials by 24%. So that's, you know, that's a change from what we've had. It's a positive thing. But in practice, that uplift by 24% of the addition only means you get to actually being 24% above the additions in England in 10 years' time. So it's a gradual, slow process. It doesn't give you... 24% above per head immediately. It kind of converges over time. It is really hard to understand, Stephen. I mean, and, uh, you know, I, I spend my time reading these reports and looking at charts and looking at data and trying to understand um, as well. But basically, it's a convergence over time rather than immediately getting 124%. Um, I, 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 you know, very few people want to talk us into a crisis, but are we in a financial crisis or not? Are we heading to one or not? Well, we've certainly been in a financial crisis over the last couple of years with the um, absence of the executive and the uh, overspends that there have been. And we've been in a situation without ministers to take any decisions. I think we have got a short-term fix for the financial crisis for the next couple of years. I think after that, so from 26, 27 onwards, there's a big, big problem and so back to what I was saying before, there's only a limited number of things that can help solve that problem. You either raise revenue in, within Northern Ireland or you transform public services so you're doing more with less money or you cut services or you make the case for more funding from Westminster. And what I would say is the Northern Ireland executive needs to be doing the things that are going to be demonstrating that it is serious about managing its public finances, that it is serious about taking responsibility for managing its budget, that it is considering all the options, that it's having open conversations and not ruling things out. And then it can go back to the UK government and say, we have looked at all the options, including revenue raising, and this is what we think we should do. If you immediately rule out revenue raising... I think you're going to have a very hard case to make to the UK government. OK, and thank you very much indeed. Stephen, is the Alliance Party ruling out revenue raising? No, I mean, we're happy to have a, the conversation um, around um, re- revenue raising. This year, and revenue raising year not, one. Not, 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 not year one. Um, I you're mean, ruling I mean, it out year one. 
look, what's happening in terms of there's a gun being put to the head of a, of a fledgling executive uh, to to address the, this issue uh, immediately. Now, I mean, I mean so to be clear, happens. Alliance Party says no to any revenue raising year one. Is that well, correct? Well, well, Steve, I think one thing I think it is important to recognise is there may well be a rise in the regional rate. I think the beyond inflation, a rise in regional rate beyond well, I, inflation. I, I, I don't know. It may be below inflation. It may be slightly above inflation. But I would imagine it will be in the region of inflation. Uh, but the, the notion of doing a fifteen percent rise, I don't think that is a, a viable option, and that would be seen as punitive to households, and it would be seen as as, as backbreaking uh, to a lot of businesses that are currently uh, struggling. And you've seen already that I mean, the the UK has has gone into a recession uh, in the in, in the, over the past uh, two quarters. So the economy itself isn't isn't doing well. So the notion that we would put more costs on businesses in the short run, I think, is a, is a massive uh, false economy. But we but we recognise that within that paper that there's a need for a financial plan and revenue raising has to be addressed as, as part of that. But I think it's also important to stress, Stephen, that some of the options that are people are throwing around. So hold on, so hold on. Revenue raising yeah. has to be addressed as part of that financial plan. Yes, what does yes. that mean? In, in, in the, the paper for the 3.3 billion, and this is where I think we, we want to be transparent, yeah, the, the, uh, there is a requirement for, in relation to the debt repayment that there is a, a financial sustainability plan uh, put in place. And within that, there is a requirement to, for, the, for the executive to address revenue raising. That is the, the end. The start does it say that? Of, does it actually say in the plan that, a requirement for revenue raising? Yes, that, 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 the executive has to explore and address explore. revenue raising. Explore? That's not a requirement, Stephen. Explore is not a requirement. Let me let me make this distinction very clear, Stephen. That is the, the, the long and short of what was in the paper in terms of, of specifics. The notion beyond that of the of doing a, a 15% regional rate rise in to raise 113 million in 24-25 was not something that was explicit in that paper. But, but Stephen, there's down, a hu- was, again was, we're down was, to the detail of words here. There's a huge yeah. distinction between ex- being asked to explore revenue raising and a requirement to do it. So and, what did and, you yeah, sign and, up and, to? And, did you sign and, up to a requirement? We, 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 Stephen, several things. First of all, the figure in the paper around the £113 million was illustrative. Secondly, we didn't sign up to any paper, as, ex- as explained. I mean, we had a discussion that paper was presented as a, as a fait accompli. Within that paper, as a fait accompli, in relation to the, the, the financial sustainability, there, yes, there is a requirement for the executive to explore address revenue raising. A requirement so to no, explore? There's, there's, there's no figures in that particular, particular, I don't have the paper for me to give the exact wording, Stephen, but I, I, the, 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 there was no figure set out in that particular regard. There was no mechanism spelt out as what that would look like in, in those particular regards. But I also want to stress, Stephen, that some of the options that are put forward in the popular discussion around revenue raising aren't switches you can turn off and on. Take, for example, tuition fees. Tuition fees need to be 18 months to year needing time uh, to, to implement. So would that's you consider, you would your party consider tuition fees what As we, an what option in see, two years' time. What we want to see, and you know, Stephen, I was minister, I was the person who froze tuition fees in line, in line with inflation. What we want to see is uh, higher education and further education and skills properly funded. Um, with an injection of 100 million, 150 million into those areas, you could tr- transform them. And so, as part of that, what you're describing the, the, as properly are, funded education, would you consider raising tuition fees? 
I, I, I don't think that is a, a, a runner, and it's important to stress that what England has done in that regard is an outlier. If you look at Scotland, the Wales, uh, and Northern Ireland, they've all diverged from that in, 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 in different, in different so ways. So you've ruled out tuition fees? Well, I'm, I'm, not root, I'm, not, I'm not ruling anything out. I'm just pointing out, Stephen, you've just that said there are... It. You've said you, don't, you do not think that would be a runner. I don't, I don't think it's a runner, but obviously the discussions have to take place within the executive down the line on, on these issues uh, over the next I guess, number of I years. I guess this is what I'm suggesting, Stephen. This new executive is going to have to make not just popular decisions, but tough decisions. Yeah. So it's, you know, this is the reality of what you wanted. You wanted back into an executive. You promised people in Northern Ireland you would deliver for them. And maybe there is some uh, tough decisions and reality checks. And the more time people have here to digest them and debate them, and, and and be able to pay for them, the better. So what are the tough decisions you might well, need to me, make that people can prepare me, themselves for? Let me give you an example. In terms of health reform, we want to see the health service become much more efficient and effective, delivering much, much better outcomes. There will be a number of tough decisions in terms of transformation that have to happen in terms of concentration of specialities. And that needs to be spread across Northern Ireland in terms of, of, of the yeah, geography. That's been cool. But... but yeah, that's that's been going. Cool. Now, I mean, but in terms of revenue raising, you see, you keep on talking about cutting yeah. costs, and I get it. Yeah. It could provide Stephen, a huge contribu- contribution. But is there anything in terms of revenue raising that the Alliance Party w- w- would and, and say? Stephen, Look, we we have to do it. This and this this is the frustration that we've had with uh, over the past uh, week or two in terms of this agenda and this narrative because it has become fixated on this issue around revenue raising and the options we currently have in terms of this while not not to be dismissed very tossed the sides of what we need to do so if you look at health health is is, is pushing towards a five six billion pound budget what we do in terms of transformation there is going to be far more significant than any conversation we have around revenue raising and I appreciate that's in the headlines at the moment but the discussion and it's not because of the fixation it's because the British government have instructed you find 113 million or you're not getting your debt wiped and and this is is why some of us are tearing a hair out in in frustration at the UK government in that that is basically the the centrepiece of what we're coming back to the parties we have an executive executive that's just just uh, come back, it needs to get it to sit down and work through that proper transformation. Oh, and, and let me say, let me say on health, Stephen, the last party does not play populism on health. I mean, I've taken tough decisions in my own consistency around supporting rationalisation in terms of minor injuries unit, where every other political party uh, who had signed up to Bengoa nonetheless played populist politics with it. We backed those difficult right. decisions because we, we know that for the better of patients Can overall. So we're up for that conversation, Stephen, I have no doubt. Stephen, before you go this morning, can I ask about a, a, another development? And, and and it is that the Windsor Framework Committee, now they're tasked with scrutinising EU law here, they met at Stormont for the first time yesterday and they were warned that the consequence of using the so-called Stormont break could be divergence or trivergence, um, which an official said could leave Northern Ireland isolated both from EU and UK arrangements. This is from page of the newsletter today. Paul Gill, an Assembly official, set out what could happen if this storm of break was applied after a question from the DUP's Joanne Bunting. Let's have a Earlier listen. on, we talked about in circumstances where the break is applied, what that means in terms of the legal position. And you noted that the amended or replacement EU Act wouldn't then apply, but that the existing EU law would continue to apply. And we 
have discussed how then there's a potential in circumstances where the rest of the EU then follows a different law, but Northern Ireland is actually having to retain the previous EU law that nobody else actually has to abide with. Uh, And the other issue that we noted is the potential for GB to have diverged from that position as well. So there is, uh, in theory, this potential, and academics have done quite a bit of work on it, for there to be dual divergence or trivergence where Northern Ireland finds itself in a position where uh, the regulations that apply here only apply here and neither apply in GB nor in the EU. Now, listening to that, Stephen Farry, if you were a business deciding where to set up, would you come to Northern Ireland? Steve, I think this is a, a genuine problem. I mean, I know a lot, unionism have, have cast a lot of uh, concern around the storm and break in terms of how effective or otherwise it is in terms of their agenda, in terms of stopping EU law. I mean, I think EU law is actually really important to Northern Ireland's um, political stability and our economic stability and giving certainty to, to investors. And yes, this is, this is a major issue. I was in the United States uh, last week on the East Coast this, this time, unlike a good self was on, who, who was on the West Coast. Um, and I was speaking to a lot of companies and there wasn't an awareness of the storm and break and a concern that um, if you're an investor coming into Northern Ireland and if we're marketing Northern Ireland under dual market access, um, if there is an uncertainty in terms of the updating of relevant EU law uh, to that particular business model, that is going to be a concern for that for that business. So we are in danger here of shooting ourselves in the foot here uh, with the storm and break. And if we end up in a situation where updating the EU laws, we see politics being played and, and we end up with either a delay or some other uncertainty, that's going to create, create a chill factor for, for investors. But it's not so even if the... It's not, the, premise, a, the premise of what you're saying, Stephen, is, is not if the storm and break is applied. It's the fact that the storm and break is there. Are you saying that might put off businesses uh, setting up here right now? Yeah, I mean, it, 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 people are, are aware of it. I mean, people... people see that and it, it is a cause for concern and I mean in practice if the thing settles down and we don't see people playing politics and being responsible that may calm down but at the moment this is a, a, a risk on, on, on the table and if we end up in a situation where people uh, actively uh, use those powers to uh, maybe not even prevent in the long run but to even delay or create uncertainty around the timing of application of updated EU law that's going to create a problem for, for investors. I mean getting a investment is hard enough, Stephen, in a very competitive world. We have the potential advantage of the dual market access, but if we start chipping that away, uh, it's going to create a problem. So this is a big big issue. So again, Stephen, why then? So you knew that that storm and break was part of the package for the executive to be restored. It's clear that the money details were not nailed down. Now you're saying this, the storm and break, part of that package, may put off international business setting up here. Why did you urge the DUP to get back in on, with the storm and break in place? Well, Why? Saying, I mean, we, we never supported a, a boycott of the Assembly and always believed that these issues uh, could be addressed um, uh, from, a, from a setting executive. Well, can the storm and break be, be addressed well, from within the executive? How are you going to do that? Well, 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 first of all, we need to, to, to take a step back. I mean, the storm of break came along with the Windsor Framework last year. I mean, what has unfolded over the past few weeks hasn't affected the fundamentals in, in that particular regard. We have expressed these concerns around the storm of break consistently uh, from that point. We believe that the democratic deficit is much better addressed through Northern Ireland elected representatives and civil servants speaking to the European Union right at the right start where EU laws have been updated or, 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 or developed. Speaking to, to them, you have no, no vote. 
You have no influence, do you? No, well, well, no, well, well outside the European Europe, that's, that's one of the reasons why we didn't support Brexit, Stephen. But um, if you look at places like Norway and uh, Switzerland, uh, they all have okay. uh, major well, look, presence in Brussels. Well, look, I guess and they, here's... They, 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 and, and, and they talk to, to Brussels around the, the well, law. Look, that's, I... where the fo- that's where the focus okay. needs to be, well, look, and highlighting uh, North Ireland's particular concerns around issues. Finally, Stephen, look, I think what you, I think what you've said to me this morning is that you you have already heard from some international companies in America, for example, who are aware of this storm of break and it's putting them off. It's certainly concern for them yeah. setting up here. I, I, I wouldn't say putting off, but yes, you're right to say that they're aware of it and it is, has been noted and it's an issue of concern and how okay. it plays out over the next few weeks I think is, is going to be very important in that so, regard to, so, to, 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 to reassure them that people aren't going to play silly well, games with it. Is part of that reassurance you saying this morning that your party would never support the storm of break? Uh, you can never say never, Stephen, in terms well, of those situations. So how do those but, companies get confidence well, then? But the, 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 point, the point I'm making, Stephen, is that um, we aren't going to play politics with it. So you don't like and, the storm and, of break, but you might use it. And, well, the, 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 there, is, there is a genuine issue here, Stephen, in terms of, of uh, Northern Ireland being able to shape future EU law or updated EU law that affects Northern Ireland. But the point I'm making is doing it with a yes, no storm and break um, at the end of that process is placing all the emphasis in the wrong place. It's about getting in early and expressing concerns at first principles when the, the law has been designed or redesigned. And that's where we need to be putting our where resources. Where would it leave Northern Ireland if we, let's say that that official is right, where would it leave Northern Ireland in terms of being attractive to business, in terms of trying to bring investment in here? If there was new law in the UK, being UK law, if there was new EU law, and we're sitting there with old EU law, where would that leave us? Would we be a laughing stock? Well, Stephen, yeah, I mean, there's an issue here of of, of the the snowman's land um, place for for Northern Ireland. My strong uh, belief is that it is massively to our advantage in remaining aligned to EU law. If you speak to businesses in Great Britain, they will say the same thing about the rest of the UK being aligned to EU law. And I hope that if we end up with a changed government uh, after the next election, that the the approach they will be taking is is to remain as closely aligned to the EU as possible. So do we need a... the storm and break on the storm and break. Well, uh, I think it, it, it needs to be used uh, extremely, extremely carefully, and uh, and uh, I, I think this this points to the whole issue that um, of Brexit uh, being this excuse for d- diversion. How come this wasn't revealed by the political parties, any of you, before we went back in? During all those discussions, I've I've been saying this at the storm and break for the best part of a year since it was unveiled that last February. Okay, all right. Stephen, thanks for spending so much time with us today. Mick Fig, the editor of Slugger Hotel. Good morning to you, Mick. Morning, Stephen. I'm sorry for the slight technical delay. Um, the technical delay is called Linda McCauley. Um, so we, we've just heard from Stephen Farry, Deputy Leader of the Lions Party, saying, yes, the storm and break is a big problem, is a big worry, and, and, and if it is applied, it may put business off coming here. Yeah, I think the word's potential here, Stephen, is the word that was used in committee yesterday. Uh, it certainly has the potential for massive divergence, uh, but as you know, Stephen is the DP not telling us it protects it, it helps them protect Northern Ireland from well, divergence. Depends. No, I mean, look, when this deal broke, I put a I put a piece on Slugger, and I basically said, look, in practical terms, the cost of creating issues like this by creating a divergence between EU law 
in either the law in GB or, uh, as has been pointed out yesterday in the committee, uh, a legacy EU law here, they're calling it trivergence. Okay, the, the, the cost for that is not enormous, but, but, you know, in business expectation, all the rest. But the clear thing that business wants is predictability. Uh, and, and my view of it was, and because none of this gets rid of the problem per se, but what it leaves it down to is um, if the UK government and Stormont is prepared uh, to abide by the convention whereby it reads EU law and where it needs to be applied, it is a, it, the, the, the UK uh, Equus is updated, then there's not a problem. Um, it's only a problem if somebody wants to make a political issue out of refusing a particular uh, a particular regulation. Uh, and, and, and so, but I this has been think... sold within Jeffrey Donaldson's explanation of what he achieved within his negotiations yeah. as, 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 as a key piece of the armory. So in other words, he has every intention of using it if he needs to. Now, the storm yeah. and break itself, it, all it does make, from my reading of it, is it pauses the legislation and asks the EU to consider, asks the UK government to consider yep. with the EU as to whether that legislation could go ahead. It does not empower politicians here to stop it forever. It doesn't do that. No, it doesn't do that. And that's one of the reasons why they didn't accept the Windsor framework in the first place. But I think what there is and what has changed is between the announcement of the Windsor Framework and uh, the, the recent deal is the UK government appears to have dialed down on a lot of its original Brexiteer ambition to break free and to become, you know, to have London be Singapore on Thames. Uh, and it's the dialing down of that political ambition, I think, that has created the, the, the opportunity for people to get back in. Now, it, has, it, it, it is potential. It can happen. It could happen. But only, uh, only if somebody in Westminster takes a decision not to not to uh, pass uh, EU regulations on goods that are being exported to the European Union, um, or somebody in Stormont pulls the Stormont uh, the Stormont break. How likely is that? I think it's. It's possible, but I don't think it's likely, okay. certainly not in the short term. All right. This government hasn't got far to go, and the next government is very... Uh, I, I suspect Keir Starmer and uh, Rachel Reeves are going to want... The first thing they need to fix is the economy, and the, fir- the first thing on the agenda will be reinstating proper access. Okay to the European Union. All right, but who knows what the result of the election will be, and I know you're looking at at, at recent bad election results and polls, and I I get it where they are. However, given where we are now, right, if you were a business looking at the potential of setting up in Dublin, the potential of setting up in London, the potential of setting up in Belfast, now, we've, we've got things that go for us for that, for example, our property prices, the cost of having offices and the costs um, yeah. are lower in Northern Ireland so there's a big plus right and yeah. we're, we're, we're often hailed as, as, as having a great potential within our workforce there's yeah. another great plus yeah. but, but if you're a business and you don't know whether your products are going to be subject to UK law EU law or only EU law would you mm. come anywhere near this place? Well, no. If that was if that was a near term prospect, I think that 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 would create instability for business, and I, I and I think you would see 
not a massive rush out of Northern Ireland, but certainly in an incremental set of decisions to take people away. But I come back to this idea that it is theoretical. It, and, and, it, and although it can happen, it does need someone to have the political capital to spend on something like this. And, uh, you know, lay aside the, 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 the outcome of the next election and let's say that we don't, you know, that we have no clue as to how that's going to go. The next UK Prime Minister who decides to go for divergence on, on a matter that directly affects Northern Ireland is going to play around with the general destiny of No, it's the, the potential of, the of divergence. That's, I'm asking you, not about are they going to do it. I'm, I'm, I'm saying, look, if there is even the potential of divergence, yeah. and clearly there is, how many international businesses is that going to put off? Day one, uh, no. Oh, I, I no, I don't. I think, look, I think businesses are much more pragmatic than you're giving them credit for. Uh, Stephen, you know, at the end of the day, there's a risk. There's a risk assessment to be taken on this one, and if the risk assessment is relatively low, that they're, that they're going to face a kind of a cliff edge because of some ch- potential change in some unspoken right. uh, regulation in the future. I don't think that's very high on their risk le- le- uh, uh, register. I think if in, at some point in the future, and who knows, you know, we're we're facing the possible re-election of Donald Trump in America at the end of the year. So anything in this particular universe can happen. Uh, and if it can happen, it may well happen. I think what, what would really put the risk uh, factor up for most businesses is seeing right. a radical Brexiteer uh, administration coming into Westminster. And at that point, I think that's when the red light comes onto the dashboard. Thanks for coming on this morning. Editor of Sugar O'Toole, uh, Mick Fealty. Of course, the political parties being back in Stormont might provide that attractiveness for Northern Ireland, mightn't it? The fact that they are back there, that they're working, that we have local ministers, that's a big, big plus potentially to lots and lots of businesses thinking, OK, there's a there's a government back in there and the stability that that provides. Dan and Lisper, morning, Dan. Oh, Stephen, you've eventually come to me then, have you? Well, I'm sorry, we're squeezed because of Linda McCauley. Aye, how much does that not cost the licence fee payer about 600 quid for 10 minutes of your time? Anyway. I wish. I know. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bigger, there's a bigger threat of you going on 50 for, for another 50 years, I'll tell you. <laughs> I, I'll have a heart attack before it. <laughs> <laughs> you think I could cope with this for another 50 years? I don't think you could. Now, anyway, Stephen. come on. What do you want to say? I'm very, very angry at you this morning. Right, no, no, yes. for, the party, for the party political broadcast that you've given the Alliance Party. All right. I mean, my God, Stephen, uh, <clears throat> they were the ones who didn't want to uh, go back, who wanted Stormont to remain. Uh, have you ever considered the position we would have been in if the DUP and the TUV hadn't left? We would be in a billion pound deficit. The country would be bankrupt. And for the simple fact that Mr. Murphy can't read a balance sheet or he can't doesn't know how much money he has in the bank. Because the last time he wow. he he promised us there was four hundred and thirty six million pounds of unallocated funds. Mr. Murphy would dis- would dispute this. No, you're you're gonna find that was the premise of the last election, that there was four hundred and thirty six million pounds. And if we would only elect those people, there would be money to put in our pocket. But now we we uh, uh, we are have the critic you are criticizing the DUP for staying out when for two years you shamed them absolutely shamed them you had a child here on there who needed a heart transplant and they were painted as as uh, inhuman 
uh, then only they would get back to, to Stormont. The laws would be passed. And now that they've got the money, uh, you're saying they should have stayed out to get more money. I'm not saying any. I'm asking questions. Yeah, well, you, well, that was the premise of the show. But why are you not holding, Mr. Uh, Mr. Uh, and thank you for giving me the time because I was very critical of you the last time. Yes. Uh, and that proves that... Uh, you're still critical of me now. <laughs> Welcome to my world. I know. Come, uh, yes, I know you I was, have to be I was, I, was, I was critical of you for when you weren't getting on. Now you're critical of me because you are on. Oh, uh, no. Uh, yeah, well, uh, you've got a point. But anyway, Stephen... Uh, we're talking. Uh, I mean, I mean, your, your yes. commentator there was talking about uh, the, uh, Singapore on, on time on times. Yes. What we are competing with in Northern Ireland is Singapore, Singapore Plus on the Liffey. Dan, thank you. Thank you for your call this morning. Hopefully we will hear from you again. Talking about, Dan's talking about whether I can go for another 50 years or not. What about the Liverpool manager, Jurgen Klopp, announcing that despite his team being in one of the best positions in their history, he's over. He's stepping down at the end of the season. Then there's Andy Murray, three-time Grand, Grand, Grand Slam champion, having one of his worst periods of his sporting careers. It says, despite being a terrible moment, he will not quit. It just begs the question, when do you throw in the towel? Is it a good time to get out, if you can afford it, in your mid-50s? Maybe earlier, do you keep on going? Earlier I spoke to the commentator Siobhan O'Connor and Bumper Graham, but I'm asking Siobhan, what's the best age to retire? Is it 67? Absolutely no way. You know, like, look at Eric Idle saying he can't retire I, I would say I'll be similar to him, if not worse. We can't financially afford to retire. And also, it's probably not great for our brains neurologically because if we're not active, we're going to diminish neurologically. Look, we're like, I just feel I'll be like him now. I won't be idle. I'll be working right until I'm 90, look, I reckon. Obviously, money is a key factor here. But for those people... So I, I, I think if we're having this debate, we, we need to accept that... Most people can't afford to retire, or if they do, they're they're downsizing, they're selling their house, they're they're restricting their holidays in order to get out of work. So if we park the factor of money, which is the major factor, I get it. I think this discussion is about do do is it good to work for as long as you can, no matter how much money you've got, or actually is is it good to call it early and do other things? Bumper? Um, how's yes, bumper, how's I, bumper world? Well, bumper world's fine. Um, I, I think uh, there's no fixed age. You know, you can't just say retirement at 60, 65, 70 is right for everybody. I think we need to take a more flexible approach to it and different circumstances will help tell people when they think they can either retire fully or sort of semi-retire. And obviously money's one of the big things, but there are a couple of other aspects to it. Um, if you're retiring uh, fully, uh, the first six, eight weeks is an extended holiday. But after that, how do you fill that void and that gap yeah. and, and keep active? And the other thing is, I think, like most things in life, you've got to think about well-being. And is retirement going to be good both for your physical and mental health? I was... For some people, it will. Yeah. For others, it will put more pressure on them and won't be as, as healthy for them. I was talking to somebody the other day about this, Siobhan, because there are lots of my friends talking about this because, of course, Jurgen Klopp, he's, he's decided, manager of Liverpool, and he gave that press conference recently in which he said, look, I, I just had this feeling inside me 
that it was time to go and and time to end and and, and have a rest. Is yeah, that is that yeah. void of rest exciting or scary, Siobhan? You see, the problem is we've never rested until this point. We've ne- a lot of us haven't put in the self care, haven't put in the eighteen holes of golf. We've basically neglected all those things. Work, 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 work. And then suddenly we retire and there's a void. So unless you put a plan in place, unless you have all your action and activities ready um, for when you retire, you might just sort of, I guess, I suppose, for want of a better word, go into a bit of shock. But what about planning? Putting a plan in place? You see, for many of us, we've had our kids older, and I'm sorry to hark back to finance, but the logistics are, and the logical thing is that we need to provide for our families. And I had my kids at 37 and 39. There's no way I could retire early. But if I was to put a plan in place, I'd have to actually decide, first of all, what am I going to do for my brain and what am I going to do for my body when I retire? So start doing the small things now, building them into your routine. So just not making work the big be-all, end-all as you're working. Have other things in place so that when you retire, whatever age that may be, that you're ready. And also, Stephen, it was an industrial revolution uh, the 65 mark, that was when people had kids way younger and they were working in jobs where it was physical. Now we have a lot more energy and we're living longer. Is there something to be said, Bumper, for doing it your own way? That if you, I, think, if you, I don't know, I'd, I'd, I'd like to get, uh, maybe maybe the team can get it for me, of, of how much time, what's the average time someone has of life after they retire? Well, it, it's a bit more complex now, Stephen. There is there is data out there that shows the average life expectancy and the life age achievements of people. But the critical thing is you don't know how many of those people, A, are having a miserable life because they can't afford it, but more importantly, uh, in ill health in the latter years of their life. So yeah. it's a very, very poor life. Fund. So that's why I think... Well, a more flexible approach, you know, rather than saying the pension age is 67, 68, you know, why don't you base, for instance, the state pension on the number of years that people have contributed rather than an arbitrary age well, take, uh, level? Take, take me as an example. Well, I know, Stephen, that the team are just waiting for the Jurgen Klopp type announcement from yes, you. Yes, they would be in tears. <laughs> they would. They, they, there would be floods of tears here, Bumper. So t- t- I, I thought it would be champagne corks. <laughs> t- take me as an example, right? So I've just turned 50 this year. Um, I've got a few quid. So do I keep on working until um, 67, 68? I'll, by that stage, I'll not be, I can hardly walk up the street at the minute. So my knees will have oh. gone. My hips will have gone. No doubt every hang will have gone, right? And, yeah. and, and do you have a couple of years out of work in what? A nursing home? Or or, or or hobbling along the road? Or do you That's get out I early? Said, Stephen, do you get out at about 55? Or will I be... afford it, I would say to you, yes. Will because, I be bored stupid, though? Well, yeah. this, is what I'm, this is what I'm saying. You've got to think, you know, after the first six, eight weeks, will I have enough in my life to fill that void that work uh, generated for me? But also, it will probably do your health much better if you have things to do and you're not under the constant pressure of a, of a, of a hectic life, and particularly so if you have the affordability of it. I'm sure our listeners can help us this morning. 03030805555. Is it liberating getting up every morning and you decide yourself what you're going to do, or is it mind-bogglingly boring? What about you, Bumper? 
Like, are you close to retirement? Well, I retired from my full-time job almost six years ago now. Oh, oh. Um, but I, I'm, I have part-time things that I do. Yes. Um, I have a wide set of interests. Uh, both, like what? Uh, well, I try and play a bit of, of golf uh, badly. Um, I have... Are you not too interest. fat for golf? No, no, no. I'm what, quite... What, what, uh, along that golf course? No, no. Years? No, Stephen, I'm uh, a lesser man than when you probably saw me last, ah. you know. And, and I believe also, you go out to Africa, you have an interest in elephants. Well, that's the other thing, yes. I, I spend at least uh, five or six weeks a year in Africa sure, doing, wild, doing wildlife um, wow. stuff, sometimes volunteering for wildlife charities or research organisations. And how incredible is that, Bumper? I, I, I was able, lucky enough, I was able to do it when I was working, not for as long. But I can tell you that one period there, whether it be four to eight weeks, really uh, lifts you, not just for the time you're there, but the anticipation Why? of it. And then for a few weeks or a few months when you come back. Why? What do you get out of it? Well, you're doing things uh, that you're interested in. I also like to think I'm helping contribute to uh, wildlife conservation. But what is it about elephants? that? Why are they... So well, elephants elephants are really intelligent. Probably the uh, most intelligent animal next to humans. Uh, their behaviour, in terms of their social structures and relationships, etc., is really worth looking at. And just the, the sheer size of them and the fact that they can glide through thick bush and you would hardly know that they are because difficult to see them, difficult to hear them and, if they don't want to be seen. And you say they, they're intelligent. How does that manifest itself? Give me an example of an elephant's intelligence. Well, uh, through the family structures and stuff they have, they pass on history to each other so that elephants of new generations know to travel maybe Three four hundred kilometres. If they're they have a mineral, uh, mineral deficiency, and they know where to go and find those How minerals, do they do maybe that? once a year. Hi. They they communicate uh, with each other either by low stomach rumbles or by tapping the ground. An elephant tapping the ground with its foot. Other elephants will hear that up to eight kilometres away. And stomach rumbles is a form of elephant communication. Yep. Yep. You winded me up. No, no, no. There are lots of good uh, books on it. Um, there's one called The, the Silent Thunder, um, wow. and it explains all of this. So well, it, it, I tell you it, what, my, my stomach really... never, never settles. I could be a, <laughs> I could be the best communicator. I could be an elephant. I the experience, not just of elephants, but the, the whole, the whole of the wildlife experience is just so uplifting and fulfilling. And you see uh, the importance of trying to conserve that. And that's something that I think we all need to do is give more attention in our spare time, particularly if you're in retirement, to be able to do things like that. Do you know I've never done that before? And just listening to you today, I'm, I might go out in some type of safari or some type of visit. It's just... well worth doing, Stephen. Well worth doing. Wow. And so, <sighs> Siobhan, let, let's turn this then. This has gone a different way, but it's interesting. I just love Bumper's life. I yeah. mean, I think we should all retire. <laughs> so if you, if you had all the time in the world, Siobhan, and money wasn't a factor, what interest or hobby uh, would you want to pursue? I would say something in nature as well, because the kids are young. I'd love to, you know, mums who don't have to work. I am slightly envious of that because the time we spend with family after they turn 18, 
it diminishes. So the time we have with them now is so important, but most of us are working so hard and living the dream, in inverted commas, two families, two parents working, that we're missing a lot of our children's, you know, development. And they're spending so much time doing activities or in after school that we're kind of missing that. So our mams probably had it the right way where they didn't work. But there's so much more I'd love to do what Bumper's doing, giving back a bit more. But there again, Stephen, yourself, right? In terms of broadcasting, you're a child, as George Hook told me the other day. He, he didn't retire until his late um, 70s. And broadcasters don't have to retire early. Well, depends. You're living your dream. Well, let's see. Let's see. This Living lo- the easy life, Stephen, more like it. Th- this lot have probably got Holly signed up already to start to start tw- tomorrow. <laughs> All right. Listen, really uh, lovely talking to you both. Thank you, Siobhan. Uh, Bumper, I enjoyed that. You've inspired me, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if you need if you need any uh, tips or or uh, suggestions, you can know where I am. You and I could go out and stomach rumble together. <laughs> I'm not so I'm, I'm not so sure I'd be up for that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Bumper. Thank you, Siobhan. Thanks, Stephen. I want to get someone next week, an expert in elephants. That's what we'll do. I just want to prize into that a little bit more and how they communicate and what they do and are they one of the most intelligent species? I see it's just been announced that Kat Dealey um, and Ben Shepherd uh, are the new presenters of Good Morning Britain, so ITV have uh, confirmed that. Kat Dealey, of course, the wife of uh, Patrick Keelty. Michelle O'Neill's going to be in the Late Late Show tonight. I'm reading as well. Look, thank you for your company. Have a good weekend. See you in Five Live tonight at 10 o'clock. If not, see you back here Monday morning. Connor comes next. Thank you for today. The biggest show in the country. Listen again on BBC Sounds. Tweet at Stephen Nolan. In a digital world that demands your attention, it can be challenging to build your own worldview. The Financial Times brings you rigorous and independent global journalism, so you can see more angles and find time to think for yourself. Don't jump to conclusions. Read to them instead. Fearlessly Pink. Financial Times. Read more at ft.com slash fearless.